last name. Amen. All right, Raymer, could you run out and grab me a bottle of water? My throat is getting a little dry. I forgot to put one up here in the, uh, in the pulpit. Um, mentioned a minute ago that today is Reformation Sunday, uh, October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther uh, famously put the uh, 95 Theses on the church door at the castle in uh, Wittenberg. And uh, really, a chain of events that, that he could never have predicted or controlled was, was set off by that and, of course, led to the Protestant Reformation. And uh, basically, the, the Reformation was a recovery of biblical truth and some core truths that we have sung about today, that Isaac read about today, that uh, authority is found in Scripture alone. It's not in the Pope. It's not in the church. It's not in tradition. It's in the Word of God. We're saved by the finished work of Christ alone, that there's no works added to that. We're saved by grace alone, by God's merited by merit, God's favor, not by what we bring to the table. And we receive that by faith alone. It's not through sacraments or through penance or anything else, but through reliance on the promises and the work of Christ that we are saved. And all of this is set up in such a way that God gets the glory alone. We, we contribute nothing to our salvation, as Jonathan Edwards said, except the sin that made it necessary. Uh, it's an incredibly humbling thing, right? It sort of militates against the pride of our hearts, uh, where we would like to think we somehow deserved or merited or, favor, or made ourselves uh, deserving of God's kindness and God's grace. God saves sinners by his free grace, without our aid. Salvation is his work from start to finish. Our works, our efforts, our choices, our intentions have nothing to do with it. We praise God for that reality. Now, if we come to Genesis 19, Genesis 19, incidentally, is an amazing illustration of God's saving grace. Uh, and I didn't pick this passage because it's October 31st. This is just what we are up to in uh, in our study of the life of Abraham, we're in Genesis 19, and the reason we're doing it is it's right after Genesis 18, and we did Genesis 18 last week. Uh, so God providentially aligned this to where it is a wonderful passage for us to look at uh, on this Lord's Day, um, a passage that contrasts the, the darkness and the depravity of Sodom with the, the deliverance of God's judgment and God's grace uh, as we, we dig into this, and a wonderful illustration. So in, in this chapter, we're going to see a guy named Lot. He's Abraham's nephew. He's living in a wicked city called Sodom. God has determined to judge Sodom because of their wickedness. And Lot is hardly an exemplary character. It's, as you read this, it's kind of hard to find things about Lot that are, that are, that are commendable or that are things that we would want to copy. Uh, none of us are naming our kids Lot, right? There's, we've got an Abraham in our church. We name our kids after Abraham. We have an Isaac in our church. Uh, we have a, a James, which is the, the New Testament form of the, the name Jacob, right? Uh, we, we, we have these names, but we, nobody names their kids Lot. Nobody's naming their kids after this guy. Nobody's naming their kids Jezebel, right? Um, maybe, but that's not, not one of those common names that come up. We, we, we tend to avoid those names from Scripture that, that are the, uh, the, the, the enemies, the villains, the bad guys. Uh, but we name them after people like Abraham, not people like Lot. And yet Lot... Even though he's in this wicked city, even though he's very compromised and conflicted, God rescues Lot from this judgment that's being poured out of Sodom. And I read this, and I kind of have to ask, my question, ask the question, why? Why is Lot delivered and everyone else is annihilated? And the only answer that makes any sense is God is a God of grace. He saves undeserving sinners because of his generosity, because of his kindness, because of the work of another. In this text, we're going to see that God delivers his people from death and from judgment, not because they deserve it, but because God is merciful and God is gracious, and that's really good news for you and me today. Now, this, this is a long chapter, so I'm not going to read the entire thing and then come back, but we'll take chunks of it and go through it. But it unfolds very nicely into various scenes. Now, now something I want to note here before we dive in is it, it is very much tied together with Genesis 18. Genesis 18 and 19 hang together. They're almost sort of one story. Back in Genesis 18, Yahweh appeared to Abraham while Abraham is sitting in his tent at the, the middle of the day, at the heat of the day. comes with two angels with him. Abraham throws a big feast, and then God... Says the, repeats this message to him about having a son, Isaac. God then announces his intentions to judge Sodom. Abraham uh, enters into intercession with Yahweh for Sodom, saying, if there's ten righteous people, would you spare it? God says, I'm a God who is ready to spare it if there are but ten righteous people. We find out in the next chapter that there are not. All those events have happened in one afternoon. So we pick up in Genesis 19 now, verse 1. And there came two angels to Sodom, at evening, 
And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, verse 2, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, No, but we will abide in the street in the town square all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. This first scene begins to occur right as the sun is going down, right at evening. And it serves as an illustration of Sodom's depravity. This first scene occurs at darkness, and that is on purpose. I think there is something going on there. Yes, it's literally happening as the sun is going down. But the darkness of the night will serve as an illustration of Sodom's depravity. Sodom's a wicked city. It deserves to be judged by God. Now, opposite of what happened in the previous chapter, the three angels show up to Abraham's tent when? At the heat of the day. There's a contrast between light and now darkness. You say, why two angels? There were three in the previous chapter. Well, one of the, the three is Yahweh. He's back having a conversation with Abraham while these two angels show up to Sodom. Now, also note this. It's evening. They'd, had, they'd gone to Abraham's tent. They'd had a big feast. That would have taken some time. And then they have gotten to Sodom in a very brief amount of time. Depending on where you put Sodom, this is at least an 18-mile journey. Um, Probably more like 40 miles. This is not the kind of journey you do on foot in a single day. Uh, unless, of course, you're an angel and you can just sort of be blasted different places. That, the fact that they show up in the same evening suggests these are angels. And the text, in fact, declares that. Now, Lot does not know who they are. As far as Lot is concerned, these two guys are just a couple of strangers who are passing through the area. Now, notice how he responds to them in verse 1. When he sees them, he meets them and bows himself to the ground, very much like the way Abraham met them. Lot, in a sense, is a righteous man compared to everyone else in Sodom. He's sitting in the gate of Sodom, which was the place where all of the important people of the city would be, where they would negotiate, where they would do business, where the elders of the city would make the political decisions. Lot is one of the civic leaders in the city of Sodom. He has gone from just living on the outskirts to living within the city to now being part of the leadership of the city. But here's what's interesting. There's no one else who extends a welcome to these two visitors. I told you last week it's customary in Middle Eastern cultures to be, go above and beyond with the hospitality. But no one else is like, hey, welcome to our city. Welcome. We'll provide a good place for you to stay. Lot is the only one in the gates, presuming that there are other people, which seems likely, to extend hospitality to them. Now, verse 2, he calls them my lords. He recognizes their their status and their importance, though he doesn't know that they're angels yet. He prays, he says, I pray you, I beg you, I request, spend the night at my house, right? Verse 2, spend the night at my house, I'll wash your feet, and you'll rise up early, continue on your journey. Lot is, is like Abraham in this regard. He is showing his godliness and his willingness to show hospitality. Now, I said in the intro, Lot's not exactly a perfect individual, but compared to the rest of the people in Sodom, He's extending hospitality, he's extending kindness, he's, he's rolling out the red carpet the best that he can for these individuals. Now here's what's shocking at the end of verse 2. They said, no, but we'll abide, we'll stay in the town square all night. Just as it was customary and expected in ancient Near Eastern culture to extend hospitality, it was expected to, to receive it. If someone says, come over to my house for lunch, the polite thing to do would be like, sure, we'll be right there. The fact that these guys turn it down is an ominous sign of what is happening. Now, why are these two angels in Sodom? They are here to investigate. God says, I'm going to send these angels into Sodom to see if Sodom is really as bad as its outcry is. It's an affirmation of God's divine justice that God is going to confirm that the city is indeed deserving of judgment. Now, look at verse 3. He pressed upon them greatly. I mean, this is, you could even render this, he manhandled them. He's like, no, you cannot spend the night in the town square. Why? Well, Lot, I think, knew what kind of horrible things happened to the defenseless individuals in Sodom's dark streets after nightfall. He knows that you don't want to be in the back alleys of Sodom at night, that, that, that things, horrible things happen, as we'll see in the story in just a few verses. He's like, you cannot do that. You need to spend the night with me. So verse 3, he, uh, he made them a feast and to bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. Now, in contrast to what Abraham did in the last chapter, Abraham kills an entire cow, and, and remember where there's six gallons of flour that he makes all of this bread, just over-the-top feast. This is a far cry from that. 
But this is not meant to be a dig at Lot. Lot is doing what he ought to do. He's showing hospitality. He's showing kindness. So as we consider Sodom's depravity, why does God judge Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, there's a lot of reasons. One of them is the, is the injustice that's rampant in the city. We saw that last week in, in the book of Ezekiel. One of the reasons is the way they took advantage of other people. But one of the reasons is their simple lack of hospitality. Strangers roll into town, nobody welcomes them except Lot. Strangers roll into town, they try to take advantage of them. They're vulnerable. They're trying to oppress the vulnerable, the weak in society, and the entire city is callous towards them. You see, how a society treats outsiders, how a society treats the defenseless, reveals the righteousness or the unrighteousness of that society. In Old Testament piety, you fast forward into the law, you find out there were three groups that God specifically says, make sure you do not oppress them. One of them was the fatherless. He says, you do not take advantage of someone who does not have a father to protect them. In a a, a male-centered, patriarchal society, someone who doesn't have a dad is going to be very vulnerable. He says, you care for the orphan, you provide for the orphan, you protect the orphan. The other group was the widows. He says, okay, if widows, here they are now without a male protector, a male provider, as a society for Israel, you go above and beyond to protect them. You make sure that their needs are met. You make sure there is a social safety net. You make sure that the judges do not take advantage of them or allow the powerful and the rich. And the third were the foreigners, were the immigrants. It says, the immigrants who are in the land, you do not take advantage of them. You treat them equally before the law. You make sure that, you, that, the, that the powerful within the land don't use their position, their status to take advantage of them. Here we have these foreigners who show up. Lot's the only one to extend kindness to them. I would suggest to you the same is true in our society. How does our society treat foreigners? How does our society treat the defenseless? How does our society treat those who are defenseless in their own mother's womb? How a society treats those who are vulnerable reveals, is that a society that is godly? Is that a society that is just? Or is that a society that deserves God's judgment? We continue on this, this, this nighttime scene, the scene that's occurring at dusk. Verse 4, but before they lay down, so they've now had the feast at Lot's house. They've accepted his hospitality. The men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house to, house around, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, and they called out unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out that we may know them. And Lot went out to the door unto them and shut the door after him and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you. Do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And they said again, This one fellow came into sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. This is the uh, sort of spelled out and sort of cinematic detail where it's almost a blow-by-blow account where we see the wickedness and the depravity of Sodom. These two angels have come to investigate on behalf of Yahweh to see, is the city really as bad as his outcry is? And this here is the proof that Sodom deserves God's judgment. So their depravity is revealed in their lack of hospitality, but it is revealed here in their hostility at the door of Lot's house. So these two guys come and everybody knows, hey, two foreigners came into town tonight. They went to Lot's house. And at sundown, at dark, a spontaneous mob shows up. Verse 4, they're about to go to bed. It's nighttime. It's dark. Darkness signaling their depravity. And notice twice in the verse, the men of the city, the men of Sodom. The, the emphasis here is these are all the males. Okay, there's a couple of words you can have in Hebrew. One refers generically to sort of humanity. And there's another word that refers to human beings of the male gender, right? And that's the word that is used here. So all of the men of the city, old, young, people from every quarter, the entire city. This is not just, hey, three real bad eggs that we've trying to, been trying to hunt down that have evaded justice. But the entire city, the entire gathering of men show up at Lot's door. Uh, This shows that the sin of Sodom was not just isolated, but this was culturally accepted. This was rampant. This was widespread. This was tolerated. This was celebrated. Nobody batted an eyelid. Now, verse 5, they say, where are the men that came in? Bring them out that we may know them. Some people would suggest, well, they just want to come out and say hi to them and get to know them. That's not what the word know means here. Notice how Lot uses the word in verse 8. I have two daughters which have not known men. He's to say, I have two daughters who are virgins. 
It's not often, but that word can mean in the Old Testament to know in a sexual sense. That Adam knew his wife and he had a child. It is that kind of relationship. So here's an entire mob of people saying, here's two guys who just came in. We want to have sexual relations with them. Men with men doing that which is unseemly, as Romans 1 would say. This is a disgusting, shameless assault of a mob that wants to essentially gang rape these two angels. This is disgusting. This is sin, that a perversion that has been so widespread in a society that the, all of the men of the city are in on it. Young and old, it's intergenerational. It's not just part, but it's the entire city coming along. Now, what is the sin here? There are are some today who would say, well, the issue here isn't so much that they're homosexual, it's that they're being coercive about it, right? Like, that's sort of the mantra of today, that you can do anything as long as it's consensual. And it's not consensual, therefore it's bad. Well, yeah, obviously it's not consensual. But the Bible affirms consistently the sin of homosexuality. Not just a certain type of homosexuality, but all kinds of homosexuality. You can read in Leviticus 18, verse 22, a man shall not lie with a man as he does with a woman. It is abomination. Leviticus 20 and verse 13, Romans 1, 26 and 27 even deals with the, the issue of homosexual lust. 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 9 and 10 deals with both partners in the relationship. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 10, Old and New Testament affirming this. We would be remiss to, to try to pull punches on this. The Bible calls homosexuality abomination. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6 says that people who are engaged in this will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's not to say that they cannot be saved, because Paul then turns around and says, and such were some of you. People can be delivered and saved through the blood of Jesus Christ from the sin of homosexuality, just as with any other sin. But we must not bow to the culture today in saying, well, this is not really that big of a deal, and if two loving people want to... No, this is regarded as sin. This is being presented here as the evidence par excellence of Sodom's sinfulness and the reason why God judged them and annihilated them in just a few verses. Tragic scene. Now notice Lot in verse 6. He goes to the door and he shuts the door after him. The door sort of symbolizing the divide between the wicked people of Sodom and the righteous few who are in Lot's house. And notice what he says, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly in verse 7. Now, there's a lot that we can say about Lot that is critiquing his failure here. Verse 8, what he does with his daughters is just unconscionable. Later on, when the angels try to get him out, he's stalling and he wants to go somewhere else. And It's very easy to point out the compromises of Lot. So I do want to draw your attention to the courage of Lot. Okay, this is an amazing scene, incredible scene. His house is surrounded by a lust-enraged mob of men screaming out for perverted pleasure. And here's one guy who's willing to stand between the mob and his guests. He stands as a stark contrast. No, Lot is not perfect. But Lot is not part of Sodom. Lot is different than the Sodomites. He recognizes the evil. In fact, he says there in verse 7, do not so wickedly. He calls what they want wickedness. Uh, It's very easy to be hard on Lot, as I mentioned. But would we be willing to stand courageously like Lot did here? Being the one person in the middle of a mob saying, don't do wickedness. To be the one person, you've seen the the picture of the crowd of Nazis all giving the, the, the salute, and there's one guy who won't do it. Lot's that one guy here. He gets a lot else wrong here, but he's not participating in their sin. He's not condoning their sin. It's easy to see his character in verse 8 as... You know, handing over his daughters. That is just unbelievable that he wants to do that. But don't miss verse 7. He's Like all of us, Lot is a conflicted, compromised individual. Let's not act as if, let's not get on our moral high horses and start being like, well, if we were there, we wouldn't have done this. Uh, Lot, Lot is showing some courage here. In fact, go with me over to the book of Second Peter. Second Peter. It's a lot of fun to, 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 to punch a lot around because I think it makes us feel better about ourselves and our lack of righteousness. Be like, oh, look at Lot. He's such a loser. At least I'm not that bad. But notice how 2 Peter chapter 2 describes him. Here is a divine commentary on this event. 2 Timothy, 2, Timothy, 2 Peter chapter 2. It's part of an extended if-then clause where Peter is piling up examples in the Old Testament where God delivers his people from divine judgment. And so verse 6, and if God was turning the cities, verse 6, of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, 
making them an example unto those who should afterward live, after, uh, live ungodly. And if God delivered just, and the word there means righteous, God delivered righteous lot, vexed with the filthy lifestyle of the wicked. Verse 8, parenthetical statement, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Here's the point. Lot is called a righteous man three times in those verses. Not a perfect man, but righteousness is different than being perfect. Righteousness means he is in right standing with God. Now, how? The same way Abraham was righteous. He believed God and was counted him for righteousness. Lot is righteous not because he does everything right, but because he's in a right standing with Jehovah. And that righteousness, notice how that righteousness is explained in verse 8. Even as he dwelled among them, his righteous soul was vexed, was constantly tortured by the evil around him. This is incredible. Here's Lot surrounded by evil all the time, and yet his soul never got to a place where he thought it was okay. His soul never got to a place where he was like, this ceases to bother me. You see, most of us today, rather than be grieved by the sin of our culture, are entertained by it. In that regard, Lot is more righteous than we are. The Bible calls him a righteous man. He's tortured by the evil around him. Here's how I know this. Christians can say, oh, man, we oppose the evil of our culture, yet you watch the exact same TV shows that everyone else does. So I'm a Christian, and I'm okay watching Game of Thrones or Squid Games. You can't pretend to be grieved by the sin of the culture when you get the popcorn out and you, you, you celebrate and enjoy the same things that the wicked culture watches. Lot is instructive to us as a man in a wicked culture whose soul was tortured. Are you grieved and tortured by the evil around you? Or do you find entertainment in it? Do you find, ah, oh, that's kind of funny, that's kind of lighthearted. Today's Halloween. Uh, I don't think it's a sin to, for your kids to dress up as Disney characters and go get candy. That's not a, not a sinful thing. But how many Christians are willing to go even further and in the dark side of Halloween, which is pretty much the rest of it, be like, oh, that's kind of light and cute to think about darkness and death and ghouls and demons as if that's an okay thing. Our souls ceasing to be tortured by the wicked culture around us. I'm parking on this point because most of what else we have to say about Lot is not exactly positive, and I want to draw attention. He courageously stands between the mob and his guests, his soul tortured by the evil around him, and he is willing to say what you're doing is evil. Now back to Genesis 19 and verse 7. Abraham's justified not because of his goodness, but because of the grace of God. But here he is in verse 7 saying, do not so wickedly. Now, maybe Lot came into Sodom thinking, I will build up influence over the years, and I'll get a position in the leadership of the city, and I'll be able to use that influence to make Sodom a better place. Now, notice how the city, how the people respond in verse 9. Stand back. They just immediately throw Lot out on his ear the moment he dares confront their evil. I think Lot, in many ways, is not unlike modern-day evangelical elites who try to curry cultural favor by employing the lingo of the world and adopting theistic evolution and downplaying the Bible's teaching on sexuality and then constantly criticizing other Christians. And the culture will applaud when you do those things. But the moment you come along and say, marriage is between a man and a woman, you might as well be a white supremacist. The moment you come along and say, male and female or abortion, life begins at conception, See, Lot's attempt to try to gain influence in Sodom melted away the instant that he dared confront the sin of Sodom. What they say, notice in verse 8, he says, I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out to you and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. He's saying, I'll give you my two daughters. Hand them over as sacrificial lambs for your lust. What a tragedy. This is the tragedy of Lot's compromise. Yeah, courage on one hand, but conflicted and compromised on the other. This is tragic what he does in verse 8. Though Lot was a genuine believer, he's called a justified man, his faith was faltering. He didn't trust God to protect him here and felt like he had a, had a choice between the lesser of two evils. As Charles Spurgeon said, when confronted with the lesser of, of two evils, choose neither. And Lot tries to take the lesser. He fails to raise the consciences of Sodom, so he attempts to assuage their lust. Now, you can read a parallel account or a similar account in, in Judges 19 about what would have happened to these two girls. Uh, a sickening event, and I, I won't go into the detail, but you can read that to see this would have been a death sentence to them. Now, thankfully for Lot, they won't have it in verse 9. 
Notice what they say in verse 9. This fellow came into sojourn, and he will now be a judge. In other words, they're saying, Lot, you're an outsider, and now you dare to judge us and say that what we're doing is wicked? That canard is not a new one to say, quit judging me, or only God can judge me. They're saying, Lot, quit being so judgy. Let us do our thing. You're an outsider anyway. You see, even though Lot tried really hard to fit into Sodom, he never could because he was a Christian. He could never quite fit in. They regard him as a a carpetbagger who's appointed himself as a judge. And all those attempts to compromise, all those attempts to influence mean nothing. You see, our world will tolerate Christians in the gate so long as they don't speak out against the evil of the day. People at work have no problem with you being a Christian until your Christianity suggests that what they're doing is evil. We can... People have no problem in our world with us being Christians until we dare say something that goes against the cultural sensibilities of our day. But if we're going to be faithful Christians, we've got to stand on the word of God, the entire word of God. That's what Martin Luther did in the Reformation. He was willing to say sola scriptura, the word of God alone, and he was willing to die for that. He's saying a mighty fortress is our God. That was real for Luther, that God was his protector, and he expected any day to be burned at the stake for daring to defy the powers that be. We can't regard ourselves as faithful Christians if we do not stand where the battle is occurring. Right? If we're not willing to stand where the battle is occurring, we can, we can affirm all the heroes of the past. We go, oh, Luther, what a great guy. And oh, what Calvin did, what a great guy. But if we're not willing to say, here's the line, here's the word of God. Here I stand, I can do none other. Unless, I, unless my, consci- my conscience is captive to the word of God, we're not being a faithful witness a faithful presence. Tragically for Lot, he was trying to be a faithful presence in Sodom, but the presence overrode the faithfulness. And Sodom seeped into his soul and corrupted his values. Here's my question. How much has your soul been corrupted by the values of our society? There, 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 there is a truth war going on in our world today. And I don't mean about the media and those things, but I mean about more fundamental realities. of Do we come up with our own truth, or is there God's truth? Do we get to decide what we are, or, or, or is it what God says? We've lived in this world for so long where the, 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 the sort of the mantra is, you know, be true to yourself. And the people come along and say, well, the real me is actually a woman trapped in a man's body. Well, once you've accepted the first one, be true to yourself and assume that yourself could be something other than what God made you, we've got a problem. Yet we have ex- we've accepted the, the premise that this world has that, could be who we are, whoever we want to be, and, and define our own reality and all these sort of things, rather than saying, here's what the Word says. I digress. These opening verses show that Sodom and Gomorrah was ripe for divine judgment. Look how bad it is in, in, in verse 9. The end of the verse, they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. Then the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house. Okay, two angels, good to have them in your corner. They yanked Lot back into the house off the front doorstep, and they shut the door and smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. The sin of Sodom was so bad that it took angelic restraint to stop them from carrying through with their sin. By the way, that's true of all sin. We would, be, we, we would be sinners of the worst type if it were not for the grace of God restraining our sin. I am thankful for God's grace that restrains sin. Our world is not as bad as it could be. We have things like law enforcement and laws and, and prisons that prevent people from being as bad as they could be. Thankful for those external restraints. Thankful for God even holding us back, keeping us from doing things that would be self-destructive, leading to worse and worse sin. It shows you how sinful the human heart is that it takes divine restraint to stop us from going down the path of destruction. Perhaps the most horrible judgment God can bring on a nation is when God gives a nation over to their own lust. That's what Romans 1 describes. God gave them over. God gave them over. When God says, I'm going to take my hands off and let your heart run its sinful course to its logical conclusion. Restraining their sin, albeit temporarily, so that God could deliver Lot. The city of Sodom deserved God's judgment, their, their lack of hospitality, their, their hostility at the door, the, the fact they had to be restrained by angelic intervention where the angels smite them with, uh, I believe, a blast of light that blinds them. And it's, they're, they're, they're so caught up in their lust that even with blindness, they're still trying to find the door. It's almost comical, a bunch of lust-filled men trying to find the door because they will not be deterred from their object. That's, that's pretty messed up. 
So at this point in the story, we're like, all right, God, yep, we get it. The city deserves to be destroyed. The entire city is willing to engage in, in violence of the worst kind and perversity of the worst kind. Would you bring the judgment already? But look at what happens in verse 12. And the men said unto Lot, have you here any besides son-in-law, thy sons, thy daughters? Whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters. Uh, we found out in verse 8 that his daughters have not yet consummated that relationship. So these are men who are engaged to his daughters. And said, up, get you up out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he seemed to one who mocked unto his sons-in-law. We now see the dawn coming as deliverance is brought to Lot. We, we look in verse 15. And when the morning arose, the angels hastened Lot saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. So now God is going to deliver. We see the depravity of Sodom in the, in the opening verses, and now we see the delivering grace of God. Notice how the scene changes from it was nighttime to now it's morning in verse 15. That's on purpose to say it, 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 deliverance comes in the morning. Christ rises from the dead the first day of the week when it was yet morning. There's, there, there's some symbolism wrapped up in that. But notice God's grace. One of the glorious truths of the Reformation is we are saved by grace alone. Not by merit, not by works. God gives them a gracious warning in verses 12 and 13. God says to Lot, there's other people we're willing to save. There's a warning. Judgment's coming. Do you have any other family members that you can get out of this place? We will destroy it because the cry has waxed great. Now, verse 13 echoes the statement that God made back in chapter 18, verse 20. The Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is grievous, I will go down, go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it. Think of it this way. In a legal sense, chapter 18, we get the indictment of Sodom that there's evidence to suggest that we can go to trial here. Verses 4 to 9 proves that that indictment is there. The evidence has been brought in and the verdict has come. And now the sentence is decreed. The city will be annihilated. The city must be annihilated. You say, well, that seems kind of harsh. No, the entire city was given over to this kind of wickedness. By the way, if you have a problem with God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, you're going to have a real problem with the end of the story of the Bible, Revelation. Man, the God of the Old Testament is judging and killing people. The God of the New Testament is nice. No, read Revelation. It's the same God. Uh, simply what we have in the, in the Old Testament is a little picture of what will happen on the day of the last judgment. And what will happen on the last judgment will be eternal judgment, not just a temporal judgment. So, so here's Lot in verse 14 rushing off into the night to try and find his sons-in-law to be. Presumably... They were part of the mob that was trying to break down his door just a few verses before. And yet God is gracious to say they have a chance to get out of the city because of their association with Lot. It says, up, get you out of the place. Now, here's another place we can see a little bit of, little glimmer of godliness in Lot's soul. He believed the message from God. He believed that God was going to indeed destroy the city. To such a degree, he's willing to go hunt down his sons-in-law and call them to leave the city. But tragically, he seemed to one who mocked. They're just like, ah, yeah, this is because of what happened at your house earlier. You're just trying to skip town because you're embarrassed. Any number of reasons, they do not believe, but they are given a warning. Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. God is extending a warning to you today. Judgment is coming, a judgment far more severe, infinitely more severe than what fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. And today you have an opportunity of escape by running to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're like, ah, hell's a big joke. Tonight, there'll be a lot of people who will dress up in costumes and have parties, which will suggest that death is a big joke, something we make fun of. It's, 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 it's laughable. It's like a kid's game and, uh, you know, ghosts and death. It's ah, something to, to mock. No, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. There's something final about the coming judgment that God is going to bring on this world and every soul that does not know Jesus. We move on now, verses 15 and 17. There's a gracious command now. God graciously says to Lot, I'm going to deliver you out of the city. 
in the morning, okay, when the morning arose, this is literally at daybreak. This is, this is not sunrise, but you know when before the sun gets up, those of you who get up really early to go to work, you know, like the sky begins to turn kind of that gray color, and then the sky begins to turn pink and then red, and then the sun comes up. This is before sunrise, those 20, 30 minutes. The angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise. I think they almost woke Lot up. Lot, it's time to get out. Arise, get up out of bed. Take your wife and your two daughters, which are here, lest you be consumed, lest you be swept away. This is the language like a flood of judgment is going to come through the place in the iniquity. That is the punishment of the city. Now, verse 16, we see Lot's conflicted, compromised heart. While he lingered, the men, the angels, laid hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful... Underline that phrase. And they brought him forth and sent him without the city, outside the city. And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he said, that one of the angels said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay in the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. This is God's grace. That phrase there, the Lord being merciful unto him. The only reason why Lot was delivered from Sodom was because God showed grace to Lot. Lot did not deserve this deliverance. Lot did not merit this grace. This was God's kindness to him. We would not have batted an eyelid if God had said, well, Lot lingered, he's going to suffer with their punishment. You had your your chance, buddy. But God drags him out of Sodom because God is gracious to him. Now, the dark night of Sodom's depravity is now at an end. The day of God's wrath and judgment is beginning to dawn. And the only hope of deliverance is to flee the city. Love Pilgrim's Progress. Leave the city of destruction and go to the celestial city. There's two cities you can be part of, the city of man or the city of God. You can be part of the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of Christ. Which one are you in? Which king rules you, the king of this world or King Jesus? Just leave the city, flee the city. The Lord is merciful. That's the only reason. You see, Lot... He was the one who chose to enter Sodom. We remember back in chapters 13 and 14, he went to Sodom because he was greedy. He camps on the outside of Sodom. The next thing we know, he's living within Sodom. To, to, to change Edwards' quote that I gave earlier in the message, the only thing Lot contributes to this deliverance were the bad choices that made it necessary. Like he should have never been here in the first place. And yet God drags him out. He laid their, they laid their hands on him. They literally take him by the hand and like, let's get out of here. Yank him out of the city. This is undeserved grace. Lot is saved not because he willed himself to be saved, but because God willed him to be saved. This is undeserved grace. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, recounts the story of his conversion. He goes from atheism to Christianity. And he makes the famous statement at the end of one of the chapters that I was there, the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. And then he says this reflecting on his conversion, how it was almost like, he's like, I almost felt unwilling, dragged along by God's kindness. He says, the prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore the love which will the high gates to a prodigal open who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. I love that. Right? How did you and I become Christians? Like, well, I, just, I was just inclined to love God. No, we were inclined to hate God. It was God's grace that sought us when I was a stranger wandering far from the fold of God. If he had not loved me first, I would refuse him still. And he lovingly drew us. He lovingly wooed us. He lovingly sought whether the gospel came to us. You could not have orchestrated the circumstances of your conversion. Maybe you were born, how many of you were born in a Christian home? Okay. You could not have orchestrated your own birth, right? You realize that, right? You could not have seen to it that those two people were brought together and that those two people came to faith in Jesus and that those two people saw to it that you heard the word of God and were brought to church. Yet a sovereign God is able to orchestrate all of those things so that you and I would be here today. Think of the billion decisions that result in you sitting in this room today. What grace unmerited favor. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now we get this word escape, verse 17. You see that word, escape for thy life? We see it again in verse 18 and 19. Lot said, Oh, not so, my Lord. He doesn't want to go to the mountains. Behold, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight. 
That's the truest thing Lot says in the entire chapter. And thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold, now this city is nearer to flee unto, and it's a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. So here's Lot, like amazingly, he's trying to negotiate. He's like, hey, thanks so much for saving me, but I don't really think you could finish the job. That's basically what he's saying. Is yeah, you can get me out of Sodom, but man, I can't go to the mountains. Let me go to this little city, and it's called Zoar. Uh, we see that in verse 21. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou come thither. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. But you notice that word escape in verse 17, and there it is again in verse 18, and there it is again in verse 20, and there it is again in verse 22. The only way of deliverance is to escape. Now, here's the cool thing. Um, the word escape is the Hebrew word malot, which sounds kind of like the name lot. And there's a play on words here. Lot got out of Sodom, or Lot was let out of Sodom, if we want to kind of put it into English. Play on words. Lot's a guy who escapes with the skin of his teeth. And here he tries to negotiate with God. Again, we would really understand if the angels are like, that's it, we're sick and tired of your whining. Just go back to Sodom and see if we care, right? You don't want delivered? Fine, have it your way. But then God graciously gives this concession to Lot. That's just amazing to me. He makes this demand that he's in no place to make demands, and yet God shows grace. Now, Lot forgot that the same grace that would deliver him out of Sodom would see him through all the way to the mountains. Uh, I think we sometimes do the same thing, beloved. We believe that amazing grace saved a wretch like me. We believe that, right? Yeah, amazing grace has saved a wretch like me, but we will forget that grace will lead me home. Everything between our conversion and our glorification, God will see to it that we won't lose our salvation, that there's nothing we'll do that will change the outcome. He will see to it that he brings us every step of the way to final deliverance. How often do we doubt God's purposes in between leaving Sodom and getting to the place of safety? Lot prays for God to deliver a little city on his sake. God, would you spare the city of Zoar? By the way, the city of Zoar was one of the wicked cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. Zoar deserved to die. And yet God is like, I will spare that city for your sake. Verse 21, see, I've accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow the city for which thou hast spoken. God actually answers Lot's selfish prayer. That's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. See, God shouldn't have done that because Lot's like praying selfishly. He's compromised. He's making a dumb request. God said, go to the mountain, and Lot's trying to negotiate with God's commands. I love the statement that Gordon Wenham makes. God may accept the prayers of his people, even if they are not as blameless as Noah or as believing as Abraham. Divine grace is the ultimate basis of salvation, not human righteousness, to which I say amen a thousand times over. We're not delivered. We're not saved from judgment and from death and from damnation because of anything in us. God doesn't even answer our prayers because they're really awesome prayers. He answers our prayers on the basis of his grace. Remind yourself of that next time where you're like, I'm going to pray and man, I will sort of move heaven's gates by my, my, my eloquence. Oh, no, no. God answers prayer simply by his generosity. He knows what things we need of before we ask. And God will even accommodate our weakness. Uh, he does it in so many ways, even in the way he writes the, the story of the Bible where God is described in terms that we can understand and grasp at times because he knows our weakness, he knows our flaws, and he gives us the spirit to help us in our infirmities. I think if anything, the story of Lot highlights is this, this deliverance, this grace of God in delivering this guy who doesn't deserve deliverance, who fights God every step of the way, and yet he's rescued. But now we come on to the third scene of the story. We've gone from the darkness of dusk and Sodom's depravity. We've now seen the, the glimmer of dawn in, in Lot's deliverance and our deliverance and our salvation. But now we get to the climax of the story, which is daylight. Verse 23, the sun was risen upon the earth. So earlier it was that gray before dawn. And now the sun has peaked up over the horizon, has now come, and the ground begins to heat up as it would there in the Middle East as the sun comes up. It's risen upon the earth as Lot entered into Zoar. So there's about a half hour in the Middle East between the first glimmer of dawn and the rising of the sun. So in this half hour, Lot's making the journey from Sodom over to Zoar. And God's getting ready to unleash the judgment. Then, notice this, the Lord reigned upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah. Brimstone and fire, that is the idea of burning sulfur, from the Lord out of heaven. 
And he, again, that's the Lord, overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, the place where he was the day before, where he was pleading with God. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And behold, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God remembered the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities which Lot, in which Lot dwelt. We see the destruction of Sodom, the judgment of Sodom. The sun rises in those 30 minutes. Lot gets out of town and then God immediately rains the judgment down. Now that word rained from heaven should remind us of something else that happened in Genesis. And that is the flood. God rains Rain from heaven, 40 days and 40 nights in the flood. There's a lot of verbal parallels here between this and the flood narrative. Just as in the flood narrative, God wipes out all the earth here. He wipes out the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as he delivers Noah and his sons, here he delivers Lot and his daughters. God rains this fire down from heaven. Now, verse 24, once, I think, anticipates what people would think today. A lot of people come to this passage today and say, I can't believe God's committing genocide here, wiping out an entire people group. What a mean and nasty God, later on with the Canaanites. What a mean and nasty God. And some people would try to be like, well, God didn't really do this, and it was really other things. And there was actually like we're on the Great Rift Valley, and gases started coming out of the ground, and a volcano. And God really had nothing to do with this. Well, if you're thinking that, verse 20, you've got a real problem in verse 24. The Lord reigned upon Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone from the Lord, and he overthrew those cities. God's very clearly the agent of this judgment. The Bible is very clear. We have a God who is going to judge this world. He personally will direct, judge this world. This here is just a little picture of what's going to happen at the end times. If you're thinking this morning, well, only God can judge me. You ought to tremble where you stand. Because God will surely judge. He really will judge this world one day. The Son of God will one day split the eastern skies and return to this sinful, depraved planet and will unleash a final judgment. The Bible is very clear about that. Not just in the Old Testament, but the New. This is an illustration of what is going to happen at the end of the age when history is done. You see how pervasive the judgment is in verse 25? The cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants, and even the vegetation. One day God's going to come back and the entire earth will be burned up and he will make a new heaven and a new earth. 2 Peter 3 and verse 7 reminds us of that. 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 8 and 9 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8 make it very clear that God will judge this earth with fire one day. In fact, Revelation 20 says that whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Not just judgment for a day, but judgment for all eternity for those who do not know God. Now, we read the story and say, well, we're not as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Really. Matthew 11. Go over to Matthew 11 with me. This is a very chilling statement. Matthew 11. Jesus is speaking to the cities where he did his greatest works. These were moral cities that did not engage in rampant homosexuality. These were cities that prided themselves in their adherence to the Torah. They were religious moral cities. This was the Bible Belt of the ancient world. Right? And people were moral. They went to synagogue and they followed Torah. Look at what he says in verse 21. Actually, verse 20. He began to upbraid the cities wherein his most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. By the way, religious people need to repent just as much as irreligious people. Religion doesn't save. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon were other wicked cities. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee would have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Moral cities that Jesus came, did his mighty works, and like, yeah, no, you're not the Messiah. We, we'll, we'll handle this sin thing on our own. We've, we've got this. And he says, Sodom will have an easier time on judgment day than you. You see, with greater 
opportunity comes greater responsibility. Sodom didn't really have the witness of the word of God. They didn't have the incarnate son of God living in their midst. They just had an imperfect representative of God in Lot. They had their consciences. They had the creation around them. And that was enough to condemn them to annihilation. How much more are we culpable? We have Bibles. How many of you have more than one Bible? Okay, we have smartphones. We have internet. We have sermons galore. We have, you can log on anywhere and listen to good Bible teaching. We have opportunities. We've heard the gospel over and over again. And yet there will be some of you who who will walk out of church today thinking, no, I'm a good person. I I can earn my own salvation. I can earn my own favor. It will be more tolerable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. It will be more tolerable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for someone who lives in Mobile, Alabama, who grew up hearing the Bible their whole lives and is relying on their morality or their baptism or the fact that they were dunked in some water in a Baptist tank or signed a card They're trusting that rather than Jesus to save them. Very troubling. Very troubling. It should make us examine our hearts to see, are we in the faith? Am I truly in Christ this morning? Now, I want to conclude with this. Verse 29 of Genesis 19 says, It came to pass when God destroyed the cities, God remembered Abraham and delivered Lot. Okay, elsewhere, God remembered Noah. During the flood, that doesn't mean that God forgot him, but it's saying God renewed his, his, his love, his relationship, his focus on Noah. And God delivers Noah. Later on in the Bible narrative, God remembered the people of Israel in Egypt, and he delivered them. What we would expect is God remembered Lot, and God delivered Lot. But that's not what it says. God remembered Abraham and delivered Lot. Here's the thing that's just so awesome. Right? If you've missed out everything else I said in the message, this is pretty sweet. God delivers an imperfect Lot. A flawed lot, a compromised lot, because of the faithfulness of another. Why does God deliver a lot? Because the previous chapter, Abraham was interceding for God to deliver the righteous from the city. God delivers lot because of his covenant with Abraham. And in the same way, beloved, God saves you and me because of another. Capital A, another. Not because of our righteousness, but because of the perfect righteousness of another. Not because we're special, but because of his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. He looks at us, and there's nothing in us to commend us to God, but he looks in Jesus, and he sees nothing but perfect righteousness. And when you become a believer in Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus, you are brought in union with Jesus, and you are loved because the Father loves Jesus. And you are seen as righteous because Jesus is righteous. And you are accepted because Jesus is accepted. And you are alive because Jesus rose from the dead. All of his righteousness, all of his life, all of his goodness is put to my account. And I'm accepted with God. Now, that came at great expense to him. God took all of the depravity, all of the judgment, all the damnation that I deserve, and he poured it out on Jesus Christ. And there was an amazing exchange. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And beloved, that is who you are this morning.